Welcome to Culture Bites, where we take culture theory and turn it into everyday insights. We're powered by Human Synergistics, and our mission is to change the world one organization at a time. We can only do that together with our amazing community, so thank you for listening. Welcome to Culture Bites. My name's Dominic Gawley. I'm a consultant with Human Synergistics Australia, and I'm joined on the show this week by our head of consulting, Corinne Cantor. Hey, Corinne. Hey, Dom. How are you? I'm really well. Hey, we've started the series on causal factors. So looking at culture and what are the causes, the things that shape culture, and what are the actions people can take to shape the kind of culture they want. And so really the idea today, Corinne, is to get into some of the systems, particularly the human resource systems as they're known. And it's from the point of view of I'm someone who's just done the culture survey. I've got these results. This is perhaps an area that my organization or my team or department need to work on. What are some things I could be thinking about and doing to build a constructive culture using these causal factors? How does that sound? It sounds good, Dom. It might be worthwhile if people haven't heard the other podcasts just to sort of say that when we work with culture, there are 31 factors that shape culture. These are what we call causal factors. And in our How Culture Works model, which was developed by Dr. Robert Cook, our global CEO, they're divided into five categories. And so that's what Dom and I will be talking to and have been talking to in the podcast. So the first one that we did a couple of weeks ago was on mission and philosophy. Yep. And the one that we're going to focus on today is HR systems. And so under there, of the 31, there's three in particular we're going to focus on, which is selection and placement, training and development, and respect for members. So maybe, you know, just at the top of it, I guess, we'll take them one at a time. So if we just start with selection and placement, maybe what is that? What are we measuring there? And what role does it play in culture, Corinne? Yeah. So just before I get to selection and placement, I just want to kind of frame the role that HR systems, people management systems Mm. play in shaping culture generally. So if you want to evolve your culture, it's really culture is a behavioral phenomenon. And so a system and process in and of itself, I think of it as the training wheels on a bicycle. So the training wheels on a bicycle, the reason they're there is to help person, the child stay steady and stable in order to learn the skill of pedaling to learn and practice their balance. Okay. So if you want change, that comes through behavior. But the role that people management systems or HR systems play in shaping culture is to create the opportunity for people to practice, hold the organization steady as people practice new behaviors. And systems establish and reinforce norms. And so one of the problems in the culture is if we want to, we say we want to change the culture, but we keep our old systems, Mm. that causes friction because the systems actually require people to behave in a defensive or reinforces Mm. a defensive culture. So I just want to say that to think about the systems and processes as the way that the culture is coded into the organization. Yeah, I like it. And and often people look at systems as kind of bureaucratic systems. 
Yeah. And if that's how we approach them, then that's what you'll get is a whole lot of bureaucracy. Yeah. But if that's the approach, I think we miss out on a real opportunity to reinforce the messages about the kinds of behaviors we want to encourage around here. Yeah. And so, you know, I really implore listeners to think about, you know, how do we use these things? And instead of being bureaucratic, we can use them to actually reinforce those constructive styles and those constructive expectations of use your judgment, give it a go, use your initiative, yeah. come yeah. forward, be creative, you know, learn, grow, develop, form genuine relationships with others. We can use these to help reinforce that message. To your point, it's probably not enough just on its own, but it's the structure that helps hold it as well and reinforce it. You know, We need to kind of reinforce it lots of different ways. And I think too what people – so I really like what you said about if you approach it with a – if you think about it as a bureaucratic, then it becomes bureaucratic. But the way that I've come to think about human resource systems or people management systems is really the employee experience. Mm -hmm. So these are the systems and processes that shape the employee's experience of the organisation. Mm. You know, that's a pretty powerful lever yep. of culture. And it's not just the policy and the system, of course. It's how it's being implemented by the leaders in how – so there's a policy of recruitment, selection, placement, but it's how it's being used by leaders. Yes, indeed. And so on that note, let's dive into selection and placement. So what, mm. you know, what are we talking about there and what role does it play in shaping the culture or mm. reinforcing the culture? So the term that we use in the diagnostic is selection and placement. Probably for people in Australia, we more familiar to us would be recruitment. Right. Recruitment is what we would use. So mm -hmm. recruitment equals selection and placement. And so what we're looking to I understand, the role that recruitment and selection play in shaping a culture, of course, is who are you recruiting into mm -hmm. the business? What kind of values do they hold? What kind of what's their attitude as well as the skills and the competencies? The other thing I think from an organisational point of view is that you need to be very clear about the role that you're recruiting for. If you're not clear about the role, then straight off you've set somebody up to fail because there's no way that they can possibly deliver effectively or well on a set of expectations that haven't been clearly defined. And so immediately you've got a context potential for somebody to operate in a threat zone or a defensive way. Or just, yeah, into that green space of, I don't know, so I'm just going to exactly. kind of float. Mm -hmm. Exactly. So I think recruitment's important because it defines the role that we're recruiting for. The other thing about recruitment is that it is really about what is your value proposition so from an external point of view, it's an opportunity for the organization to talk about what their promise is to employees as they start to recruit them into the business. And so the role of recruitment is really ensuring that you're hiring people to a role that is clear, that you're hiring on the basis of objective criteria, mm. so merit, mm. and that means that you're getting the best person for the job. So the questions in the tools that we use are geared to understanding those things. To what extent are the questions that you ask fair and reasonable and objective? To what extent 
does the organization invest time and effort in making sure that they're getting the right person for mm. the right role? Mm. So I think that's a couple of bits on how recruitment, the role of recruitment shaping the organization culture. One of the examples that I give is that in some regional centers, it's not uncommon in some of the regional centers where they're looking for a role. And I've had a lot of clients tell me in these regions that it can be difficult. The talent pool is smaller to recruit from. So if you, and this is an example of how recruiting poorly can shape a defensive culture. So if the talent pool is small and you end up feeling like you're forced to recruit someone who's kind of 60% of what you want, if you don't change the expectation or the nature of that, the job that needs to be done, then you've got someone who's just barely halfway able to meet the requirements of that role and you're holding them to that expectation knowing right, they're not that there. They, they're not there. And so if you think about that situation, so for the individual, the new candidate being recruited, they're in a very difficult position and they're likely to move into a threat or a defensive state, mm. you know, and it might be in a passive way. I don't know what I'm doing. I have to ask a lot of questions. Mm-hmm. I can't make decisions. I'm not being clear with my team. Or it could be in a defensive way because they feel like they've got to look good and mm. so they work long and hard hours. They try to be on top of everything. So I think it puts the individual in a difficult place. It's not good for the organization because they're not getting the result that they need from the reason why they have that role. And it's not great for the team. So if you've got a leader who's being recruited in, who is not the right fit for the role. So there are a couple of examples of why recruitment or how recruitment shapes the organization's culture. So if we think about what is important in a recruitment selection process in order to create a constructive culture, the kind of things that help is having a really clear employee value proposition. And I'm going to qualify that. I don't mean a version of an employee value proposition that is a marketing or communications developed one, not that there's anything wrong with it. They look fantastic. But it's the opportunity to connect the employee value proposition to the HR, the people, the employee experience agenda. So for example, is part of your employee value proposition is when you come to work for us, you don't just get a job, you have a career. Then for the organization that offers that as part of its promise, then it could be that the other things that it's going to offer are things like study assistance, study tours, mentoring, you know, the opportunity for a lot of learning and development. So I think an employee value proposition that sets out, this is our commitment to you and shows how we deliver that commitment. The other thing is a transparent selection process. So it's very clear to me what the pathway is I have to follow in order to be able to apply and compete for that role. And what's the criteria? What are you looking for? Exactly, what the criteria is. Um, And and then that we actually appoint people based on that criteria. Exactly. Because, you know, like sometimes I see organizations where they kind of say one thing and they say, hold on, but (laughs) the actual person who got the job didn't meet that. Doesn't seem to reflect that, you know. Doesn't seem to reflect that. And I think that it is important 
to explain to people that when you are recruiting somebody new, not to just let them start without any kind of acknowledgement that they're joining the organisation and this is the reason why they got the job. Please welcome her, you know, or the welcome them. Because I think not that you have to do it, but it helps create a level of transparency. And part of the message is this person got this job on the basis of merit. That's what we want to reinforce. And so I actually use you as an example in this, Corinne, in that when, Uh when, (laughs) as a good example, as a good example, when we appointed a a new consultant or you appointed a new consultant and then, and basically said, you know, this is what we're looking for. And this person has this experience. They've done this thing. They're qualified in this, you know, they have this background, da, 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 da. And so it's like, cool. I'm sitting there thinking, this is awesome. You know, I can't wait for them to join the team. That's fantastic. And it was just, so it was just like making it explicit, right? It was based on merit and it was based on, the decision was based because they have got this experience and they've done this stuff and, you know, we, they interviewed really well and blah, blah, blah. You know, and yeah. so, so it's clear that, okay, so it sounds like they're an awesome candidate for the job. Yeah. You know, and I think simple. that's, yeah, that's a really great example of how the power of recruitment and selection in shaping norms and a culture. And the reason that is, is, when you communicate the who, the what, and the why, and when they're starting, it achieves a couple of things. One is it helps to set that person up for success. So the rest of the team knows that they're coming, they're joining, welcome them, we support. So it helps to set them up for success, which is really humanistic, encouraging, and affiliative in action. The other reason to do it is the message is we've had a process, we followed the process. And this is the person who successfully, effectively competed against the criteria without having to say that, you know, it's just basically. And so it's saying that it was an objective process. The other thing that we try to do is be quite transparent when we recruit people is we're very transparent about the process, what will happen, when will happen, who they will meet. And we try and open our doors so that they meet And Lion used to do this as well. There used to sort of be a process for joining. Sometimes that can be a bit tricky because you don't want to keep people waiting too long. But at the same time, our approach is I want somebody to be fully informed about who we are, what the role is, and have had the opportunity to ask all the questions. So I think the recruitment process in itself is a reflection of the culture. You know, the the other one I look for, Corinne, is in organizations, sometimes people get the pat on the shoulder yeah. rather than the open application. You know? yeah. So suddenly, hey, that was never like, that was never publicly discussed, but so-and-so is now there. They're Which, directly appointed. Because what's the message I get, right, is like, well, I wasn't the heir apparent or I wasn't in the, that club or, or something like that. Now, look, I get we've got succession planning and stuff like that, so it's all good. But if they're the successor and it's obvious, then they'll also be based on merit, you know? And so- I think the reason that rubs people the wrong way sometimes, I think organisations ought to be able to directly appoint where that seems to be what makes sense. I think when it becomes a problem is when the action to directly appoint happens implicitly or covertly at the same time that they're advertising the role. I think that that's the problem. Because they, yeah, they set I, up an expectation. Right. But actually, yeah, yeah. So it's like the, 
hey, guys, we're interested in all your ideas, and then you click to the next slide. Here's what we're doing. Yeah. I think what else it is actually is when they appoint someone, it's one thing when they appoint someone and it's like, yep, they're awesome Obvious. for that job. Yeah. Obviously. Yeah. Like, they're going to yeah. be awesome. Yeah. That's less of a problem. It's more of a problem where it's like, why did they select that person for the job? Yeah. Yeah, that's, that's, when it's an, that's when it's an issue, you know? Yeah. So there are two issues with it. One is when there's a lack of transparency and the second is when it doesn't seem that the person's the best fit fe- for the job. It feels like it was based on something else, like yeah, they're a bit favoritism. of a favourite or something yeah, like that, yeah, yeah. you know? It's, you know, and that's also, a tricky one, though, isn't it? It's a tricky one, which also goes to the reason for transparency in your recruitment process because by the same token, team members and employees don't always have all the facts and so they're not necessarily in the best position to decide or make a judgment call. So I think it's a bit of – that's why I think transparency and a clear process is so important mm. because it's saying – we're focused on hiring someone who is the best that they could be for this role. We have a process. And I also think that the other thing that I see a lot with organisations, and this comes from good intention, they open positions to internal applicants. Mm. And there are also times when for whatever reason the internal applicant is not perceived as being right for the role. but the person ends up having to go through the process, the recruitment process. Now, if you've had a conversation with that person said, look, being honest, this is what we're looking for. This is where you're short. You're welcome to apply for the position, but it may be more of a development. Or instead of getting them to apply for the role, have a development discussion. This is where it's very clear. But I think it's very disappointing for people when they feel that the decision had already been made, but they've gone through the process for show. Right. Yes. And on that note is also closing the loop with people, you know, so if someone is not successful, like, yeah, in either case, sharing why, you know, hey, Corinne, thanks for applying. It was awesome. But we were looking for someone with this experience or who did this thing or, you know, whatever it is, but give some people to work on. I remember applying for jobs, Corinne, and I guess this is from outside the organization, so different, but applying and then it's like, Oh, I'd love some feedback. What could I have done differently? No, nothing. Yeah. <laughs> like, that's the worst feedback you can get is oh, nothing. Well, I think that's so the like, norm. Then give me the it? bloody job if there was nothing. <laughs> you know, like, look, selection and placement, I think it's really important because it's kind of one of those times when the rubber hits the road. And so I think what I've seen happen to organizations is we talk a good game and we say we want this kind of behavior and we say we want that and then we go and promote that person who does none of those things. And so the message we all got and we all just saw was forget what they say. What actually gets you ahead is doing what that person did. Yeah. You know, and that's why it's important because that's a Which is the unwritten rules, right? It's the unwritten rules. And so, so I guess what I'm taking out of this is really, you know, is that open and clear system or process as well as criteria, yeah. using that to make decisions. So it's based on merit and making that clear and communicating to that everyone, hey, here's the reason why we appointed Corinne to the position, dot, dot, you know, boom, boom, boom. And um, some of the fundamentals is make sure that you've got a really clear role description. The other yeah. thing that I would add to the role description, because often there are a list of activities, right. is what is the contribution that this role makes? Nice. to the big picture or the outcomes that are expected. 
So it's more about how do I know in my life it's going to make a difference? You've got a role right. description that you've thought that out as well, right? Right. <laughs> you've got a view so about So you've actually got to put like. some thinking into it. Yes. Awesome. What about training and development? If we if we park selection and placement there, training and development, what's that one mm. about? I think it's making sure it's a couple of things. So some of the questions look at onboarding. So you've recruited someone. How well do you introduce them to the organization? Mm-hmm. You bring them in, you induct them. I don't like that word, but let's use it here, induction mm-hmm. into the, the organization. And I think, you know, that's super important because you've got somebody new who is actively chosen yeah. to join the organization. So it's at this period that your culture and the organization on show. And so their experience of induction and onboarding will either confirm, yes, I've made the right decision. This is the organization. This oh, is what I call holy smokes. Or it'll be, ah, I. What did I know, get into? Yeah, yeah. And so I think the onboarding is really important in terms of not everybody can have a massive two or five day training program. Some organizations have a very specific half-day to two-day kind of development program. I don't think effective onboarding necessarily has to be that way. You know, Mm -hmm. we're a small business. We can't do that. We don't bring on that many people at one time to be able to justify it. I think for me, you know, you never get a second chance at a first impression. Yes. So onboarding is super important. Are we setting people up for success? And to your point, it doesn't have to be this elaborate thing. It's just like, has the organization put some thought into it and are they ready for me? Yeah. So when I show up, it's like, hey, Dominic, it's awesome to have you on board. Hey, by the way, here's kind of your schedule for the first two weeks or whatever. Yeah. I've set up some time with Corinne and some time with, you know, DB yeah. and some time with, yeah. you know, this person over here, you know, what the, your key stakeholders so you can get to meet them all or do a bit of a day in the but life of, you know, yeah, and that, and that doesn't take it, any, everyone can do that. you know. That and I think take- it's some of the hygiene factors, right? With some organizations is when person starts, they don't have an email, they don't have a phone, right. they don't have a laptop computer. I've, so even I've, in the days that we're working from home, you know, like ah. you still need to be access the systems, you know, right. and so they can't get on to MS Teams. They can't meet anybody. They can't attend meetings because they don't have all they have to use there. So I think there are some basic fundamental things about onboarding, which is just about this is our opportunity to show that we care and that we value you and show respect to you. And so some of the ways that we do this is to think about, put some thought into how to onboard you and make sure that you've got all the equipment that you need. Totally different message. Like I know my wife onboarded into a company and like a few weeks before she started, they sent her like, here's the schedule. Like, yeah. you know, blah, blah, blah. And it was like, this is awesome. Like they're so set up for you, you know, and you're going to meet these customers and you're going to, you know, all this stuff. Awesome. I've been on the flip side where I moved overseas and to be fair, I kind of had changed some dates, but the manager was away and on that day they're like moving, rearranging the whole office. So I literally didn't even have a desk. Yeah. And it was like, oh my God, what have I got into? I've like moved countries and stuff and like my team it was a very passive culture. They didn't come and like pick me up and take me under their wing. I was just kind of sitting there twiddling my thumbs. Yeah. Like, what have I done? Like, oh my God, I I've just We've moved countries. Got... Terrifying. Yeah. Well, you know, move countries, move role. And the other thing is it could be some simple ideas is to send a welcome. Right. You know, welcome book or document that one of the things that we've started to do is just send a bit of a welcome document 
that has everybody in the organisation in there and a bit of a personal profile. So send it to them before they get to the organisation so that they can start familiarising. We don't it's not about expecting people to have it. They're not going to be tested. We're going to have it. a test that you know everyone's <laughs> name. I know. Yeah. But it's just about, to me, it's the gesture. We're glad you're joining. We want you to feel part of the team. Here are some of the ways that we do it. So, some of the ways that we do it is try and get all the forms done before or, you know, have mm-hmm. them ready on day one, the hygiene factors. Send them a schedule, prepare a schedule for the induction. Mm-hmm. One of the things that some of our clients have done who are, who have created transformation or created a constructive culture is they sit down with them as part of onboarding and talk about their culture. So they talk about their aspirational culture, their ideal culture, and they talk about the culture that they've got and the steps that they're trying to take to make it different or to maintain the constructive culture. And they invite the person to have a conversation. What do you think about that? You know, to ask questions about it. So I think that that's a really important thing too. It's an opportunity to share, harking back to mission and philosophy. So to bring the mission and philosophy and the values into the conversation around onboarding. So onboarding is really important because it's the degree to which you're setting somebody up for success in their new role. Create a buddy system so that they've got someone that they can partner with, ask questions with, like all those annoying questions like where's the stationary cupboard if I need to get a <laughs> yep. you know, toner, where do I do all those questions that they don't want to ask their leader about because they seem sort of mundane and inane. So I think setting somebody up with a buddy, making sure that they have their equipment and the tools that they need on day one, mm. making sure as a leader that you have carved time for them on day one. You walk yep. them around, you introduce them to the people, whether that's remotely or whether it's in the physical Officers. So that onboarding, the kind of training, it includes the training that they need for their role on systems and processes is part of that onboarding process. I often think that onboarding should really be seen as a kind of a three to six months process so that you're constantly checking in with people and seeing because they're okay. So for me, it's really about making sure that you're setting them up for success and you're not taking them. It's not spoon feeding them. It's just checking in. How are you doing? Week one, how did it go? You know, like, mm-hmm. and having those, making time for those conversations, the humanist, humanistic encouraging norm, that's what it shows and the affiliative norm. Yeah. Awesome. You know, it's such a key period of time for every employee. We all onboard at some point. You know, the other bit I'd add to that, current is inboarding, I think they call it, or at least I'm calling it that, oh, wow. which can be internal transfers. And I think this often gets overlooked and that, you know, one person moves from one team to another inside the same organization. So Corinne's been here for ages. She doesn't need to straight into it. Still take the time to induct them properly. Okay. They might know where the toner is and that kind of stuff this time, right? But still, they might not know all the stakeholders they need to know, you know, still carve out that time as their leader that you're going to spend with them. Still set them up it's really take the time out to consider how do I set the, my person up for success? We went through all the pain and everything of selection and placement and do all the interviews and getting them in. Now, when they come through the door or move desks, let's make sure we set them up for success. Absolutely. And so if we just summarize some of those ideas, it's really about putting together a schedule for yep. what they're going to do, who they're going to meet for the first two to four weeks. It's making sure that they've got their equipment 
It's making sure that you've given them the information, the time spent with them to help them understand how the organization works, whether that's in a workshop setting or whether it's just one-on-one. Establish a buddy for the onboarding process. Share your culture, your aspirations, where you were, where you want to be, how you're moving towards it and what they can do to help, where their fingerprints are going to be on it. And then the other part of training and development is really around access to Uh development opportunities. So the training, but also the career development opportunities in terms of, is there equity? Is it accessible? Does everybody have the equitable chance of actually completing, applying and completing for training and development? So that's the other aspect. Yes. And so, you know, if we only have Everyone should have access to training. If we only have the high flyers program, high potentials program or yeah. whatever, you know, like what's the message I get if I'm not one of the high flyers? Yeah. Right? Like think about that. And in a way you're setting up a bit of a competitive culture because it's like, well, to be a high flyer, I've got to beat current. Yeah. So it should be for all. Now, I kind of think sometimes people get caught up on training and development being sending someone off to the course. Yes. That's awesome. You know, we run courses. They're fantastic. But that's not the only opportunity. And in fact, most of your learning is on the job stuff. You know, exactly. do you give that person opportunities to run with that project over there or to, you know, handle this customer that's a bit more complex or something? Or how do you just train and develop people in situation? Yeah. What are the learning opportunities in the role? And if they're doing the role well, how are you going to stretch them? You know, maybe you get them to act up or act in a sideways or a a different function. So it's really about developing people in role on the job as well as more formally and through coaching and mentoring and, you know, more formal courses of study. And so I kind of think the starting point for this is do you know where your people want to grow and where they want to be? As a leader, that's kind of first and foremost. And I encourage people to say, and it may not be here. And that's okay. Like, let's be honest and be real, you know, like the next position may be, we'd love to keep you, but it may be beyond here and that's okay. Because if I know what people, where they want to grow and what they want to do, then how can we best set you up to get that experience, knowledge, skills, whatever it is by, you know, hey, I've got two projects but this one will actually give you a bit more exposure to the stuff you're interested in building skill in rather than the other one, and that one's great for something else. So having that conversation with people. And so this is one of those ones, I think, where it can become bureaucratic and we miss a real opportunity is like personal development plans yeah, and stuff like that. Because often, all the time, I see organizations where it just becomes like, oh, God, we've got to get it in by the 30th of the month because yeah, they're just yeah. breathing down our neck. And so they just put in anything, oh, I'm going to read a couple of books or whatever, you know, it's like kind of meaningless. And then it sits there, yeah. Look, I really think we've got to encourage people to take responsibility for their own learning rather than prescribing sort of templates. At the same time, the organisation's got to be clear about, again, access and equity. How do I access it? How do I participate? How do I gain those opportunities for development? And I think. This is where leaders are really important to think about each person, not as a job, someone who's doing a particular job, but to think about their development. Now, some people may not want 
to get further development. They like their job. They don't have any aspiration to going any further. They get their satisfaction and, you know, their self-actualizing opportunities outside of work. And I think that's okay too. But ask the question, what are you looking for? Where are you looking to go? What are the opportunities that we can create in the job that you've got? And what are the some of the other opportunities? Some of the organizations we've worked with have had a fantastic philosophy around development, just as you said. It's kind of, mess- you know, I think one company sort of said, your future's bright and we're going to help you create that bright future, whether it's here or elsewhere, which I think is a fantastic philosophy, fantastic attitude, because what it also does is to encourage the team member employee to think about how they can create their own path versus waiting for it to be given to them. So what it says is we'll be here to give you support, but we want you to do some thinking about yourself. You know, where do you want to be? So I think the training and development is kind of training for your job. Make sure that you've got the skills to be able to do the job well, but it's also about development for career opportunities and personal as well as professional development. I think a lot of the way that the organizations, organizations, the communities have moved is with COVID is to look increasingly at personal development, making sure that people's well-being and mental health is supported as much as their professional technical expertise. Mm, that's right. Yeah. So, you know, training and development, what's the message you get if your manager takes a genuine interest in your development versus they don't? Yeah. You know, it's such a different message and a different expectation of how we are supposed to interact together and what's expected yeah. of people. You know, like, and it's hey, a you're great just way, doing a job. Yep. And it's a great way for leaders to demonstrate humanistic encouraging because humanistic encouraging is all about helping to stretch people's thinking, helping people to develop and grow and realize their potential. That's it. You know, so I was taking out of that again, it's kind of similar to the home porting stuff. Have a plan. Get a plan and keep in mind that not all training has to be formal. There's tons. Most training is on the job, but it's thinking proactively about what are those opportunities and actually creating the situations and opportunities for people to to take on and make it transparent to them that the reason I'm asking you to do this is because I want you to develop in this area or exactly. you want to develop in this area and open it up. Everyone should have a training plan, not just high flyers, but everyone should have one. Agree. Awesome. The third one that we're going to cover is respect for members. So what's this one about, Corinne? It's a bit, little bit different. Yeah, it's interesting. It's essentially about fairness. And oh. when we were talking about this one, Dom, just before the podcast, we, I was looking at the definition to uh-huh. see, you know, I always think it's interesting to go back and see what the, what the dictionary says. And the definition that seemed to make most sense was really showing due regard for someone's abilities and worth as a human being and valuing their feelings and their perspectives, even though they may be different to yours, and treating them on an equal basis. And I think it's really about treating people with positive due regard, doesn't necessarily mean agreeing with them, but treating them as an equal and showing respect. And so to me in the organization, you can show that in so many ways. So, you know, one of the best ways to show respect is to know people's names. (laughs) It's fundamental, but to me, 
That's one of the most powerful ways to acknowledge. I see you, Dom. I've learnt your name because that's who you are. And part of the other thing is I think is to take the trouble if the name is unfamiliar, it's a name from another country, take the trouble to get that right. Australians are very good at shortening names and coming up with nicknames. And I think ultimately sometimes it can be meant from a place of endearment, but I think it also shows respect that you're prepared to Mm. learn how to say that properly. Listen to people, ask them for their opinion, ask them for their views, particularly on issues and decisions that relate to them. Be careful that you're not creating an in and out group. So this is one of the things that we were talking about before, Dom, that sometimes leaders may be on the same wavelength as a particular person. And it's not that you're not allowed to do that. Of course you are. But just be mindful that as a leader you don't show any particular bias or favoritism towards one because that can be perceived and experienced as, as disrespectful. That's right, yeah. If there's kind of an in-group, like there's the inner circle, the inner sanctum, particularly if I'm not in it, becomes an us and them uh, yes. kind of thing. And then it's, you know, what messages are people taking out of it? Yeah. You know, well, it's not about what you do, it's who you know and all that kind of stuff, which is not what we want. And look, it's kind of natural, you know, you have people you like more and, like, let's be honest. Easier to get on with, you know, and, just, and that's, you know, that's part of it, yeah. And, and in all likelihood, it's probably people who have similar worldviews, backgrounds, experiences, you know, that kind of stuff as yourself because, you know, that's why you get on. And so it's just to be mindful of, you know, if we're, we're managing a team of lots of different people that we're, we're not projecting a message that we probably aren't even intending to project, but that might be what people are mm. taking out of it. And so, yeah, spend time with people. Spend you know, time, get their listen. Views, actually take on their views, you know, be influenced by their views. And also if you say that you're going to do something, then do it and follow up and follow through and even respecting physical boundaries like, right, I've had people describe themselves to me as being touchy and feely. You know, well, not everybody is touchy and feely. And we've got to respect sort of physical boundaries and, and also people's property. That So I think there's very simple ways to show respect. I was just going to add, because you just got me thinking, you know, because there's physical boundaries and stuff like that, but also like life boundaries, if you like. Yes, yes. You know, and so, hey, like I know, you know, so-and-so in my team has a family, like calling them at 8 o'clock exactly, or, se- or setting a yeah. meeting at 8 p.m. is probably not the thing to do. Yeah, and on on the one hand we say that we support family work-life balance, but on the other hand a meeting gets called for 7 a.m. or 10 p.m., you know, right. and if it's the exception – Okay, but there are a lot of yeah. organisations in the global world where it's easy to forget that, that people have families and lives. I feel like that's one Australia and New Zealand particularly cop because, you know, often head offices in the, the Europe or, or America or something and so the time zone sucks for us. And yeah. usually we're the last people they think of when they're setting that time zone <laughs> meeting, you know. But look, some organisations are getting better where they have multiple options. There's a morning one, a night one, and it's not perfect, but at least it's not two in the morning. Or, you know, you can record the meeting, which is another way, and people can catch up and then catch up somebody else. So I think there's no sort of 
it's not rocket science respect. It's really about being present. It's about listening. It's about asking people for their views. It's acknowledging them. It's apologizing when you've done something that's offended them or that whether inadvertently or it's about all those basic human courtesies that you would like people to extend to yourself. Yeah. You know, and fundamentally, if I'm sitting in a team and I feel disrespected, what's the message I get? And I'm going straight to security. You know, if I'm feeling disrespected, I'm going to move to protect myself. One of the things that I've, I don't think people mean to do this, but one of the ways that I think can lead to somebody feeling disrespectful, and I'd be disrespected, I'd be interested in your view, Dom, is when there's a team meeting and there's an awkward subject and someone's raised it, asked a question, how many times I've seen that question ignored? Now, they team might be doing it because they're uncomfortable, they don't know how to respond to it, but effectively what you've done is totally ignore and make that person invisible. So I think that's something to be really mindful of in terms mm. of the role of acknowledgement and recognition. Yes, you know, and just conduct in general, actually, now that you've mentioned it, of like, you know, in the meeting, especially if it's on Teams, we're not messaging each other behind the scenes, check yes. out what Corinne's saying, yes. oh my God, yes. what's she on about, or that kind of stuff, because that's disrespectful. We're having the conversation up front. Yeah, agree. So there are three, first three, cab off the block. So we've looked at the recruitment systems. and selection, we've looked at training, training and, development. and development, and we've looked at respect for members. So hopefully that was useful for you, you know, and the meta message I took out of that is really just think about it, you know, think about, okay, how are we setting up our selection and placement and how we're doing that to send the message that it's based on merit, you know, and it's based on this criteria and it's reinforcing the values we say are important. Same with our training and development. Is it open for everyone? Does everyone have a development plan? Are we onboarding people? Do we set them up for success in the right way? And then do we fundamentally respect people you know, as humans, get them involved, share their view, take on their view, be influenced by their view? You know, There's no breakdown the in-groups and out-groups stuff. Danny, I love that summary. The one addition that I would add is that one of the things that people don't realize is that your systems and processes aren't just functional. They do achieve a specific end, but they also culture carrier. They carry messages around the values and they're proof yep. of whether you live your values. So, for example, you know, recruitment and selection reflects whether you reflects your values around transparency and fairness. You know, and so it's not just the process, the fact that it achieves something for the organisation. In the carrying out of that process, you're actually communicating the organization's values on fairness, to what extent are you objective, on you're carrying, you're sending messages around the degree to which you value people's input. So just be mindful that systems and processes play an important role in culture because they actually, they should be the values in action. Right. That's it. Awesome, Corinne. Thanks for your time today. Thank you, Dom. And we'll do another to continue our journey looking at the different causal factors of what shapes culture. Thanks for listening to this episode of Culture Bites. If you enjoy the show, remember to subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud, or wherever you get your podcasts. Also, 
Leave us a review. It helps other people to find the show. If you have a question you'd like us to answer, email podcast at human-synergistics.com.au. We'd love to answer it. This podcast is copyrighted by Human Synergistics Australia, all rights reserved. To learn more about what we do, visit human-synergistics.com.au. Thank you.